it's all going wrong. I broke my key in the lock last week. The shower stopped no. working. <laughs> it's just like it literally it never rains. It pours, but yeah. well, not from the shower, is it? Yeah. <laughs> literally. <laughs> this is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. So another week, another two comfortable wins in the bag, along with two more clean sheets. But just when you think the momentum is starting to build, here arrives a tricky fixture as the Manchester derby pops its head over the horizon. These days, City have reason to be confident going into the game, but last season's three defeats in four are still fresh in the memory. So what's the mood for this week's Blue Moon podcast? Is it upbeat because of City's recent good form, or cautious because, despite his obvious failings, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can occasionally get a tune out of his side? Also on this week's show, we'll be previewing the match with West Brom, and also hear more about the role that the Rainbow Laces campaign plays for some City fans. Howard Hawking will be sounding off a bit later on too. I'm David Mooney and for this week's episode I'm joined by City fan Chris Higginbottom. Hello there. And journalist and commentator for BBC Radio Manchester, Mike Miney. Hello. Um, so to, to start with chaps, um, one thing that I've noticed this last couple of weeks is, uh, Chris, it, it, it feels like City's games have been a lot more fun to watch. Is that is that fair? Um. I think once that knot in your stomach has dissipated at the end of the game and you've not lost or, you know, kept a clean sheet, then yeah, to an extent. Um, I don't know, I've found us still quite a bit of a frustrating watch, to be honest. I find that I find that a bit odd because I know it's I know, again, Mike. I know it's Burnley and Fulham, so you have to kind of you, you have to temper your expectations based on that they're not the greatest sides in the Premier League. Um, but they, I've, I've found the games really enjoyable recently. Uh, I wouldn't say enjoyable. They've been satisfying, I think, from City's perspective in terms of that they're scoring goals and, and more than one goal, which is. Always nice after the Burnley game, a third of all City's goals in the Premier League this season had come in that game alone, which sort of shows how far behind previous seasons they are. But I think enjoyable is a difficult word because the way Burnley and Fulham set up, I I think actually makes it a very frustrating game to watch. You want to see more from them and they've come to the Etihad for damage limitation. Burnley just happy to keep it at five 0 I think, given recent (laughs) seasons. But but yeah, but on the when you do take that other, the opposition out of it and you look at it from a city's perspective they have been satisfying in that there are clean sheets in that the goals are going in in that there's a little bit of creative play in that players that wanted a rest have been able to get that rest so yeah the, 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 there's been positives certainly from those games no doubt yeah uh, chris you can see as well the value of scoring early in those two games for city as well can't you that the, the, the city in the weeks before when the, when the game's gone on and on and on and you're going i just I don't know if City are going to get the breakthrough today. As soon as they've got it really early in those games, you're thinking, right, go on, kick on and, and actually do something in this game now. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of one of the mitigating things in um, the the fact that it's not been massively enjoyable, but it has been satisfying, as Mike just said there, which I agree with, in that we've got the early goal, so we're on course, but then you're watching the game unfold and I don't know it's like we almost won despite ourselves with these with getting that early goal against Fulham because you watch us go through the motions and try and impress and score and although we're knocking at the door a bit there's not that 
free-flowing football and the penetration that you'd perhaps quite expect. And to win 2-0 against Fulham, obviously they're they're kind of fighting for their lives and for a bit of respectability because they're not having a, a great run. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's a bit of a strange one, really. It's um, a difficult one to, to put my finger on. It sounds really spoiled, doesn't it, to say, I'm not finding it enjoyable with just one. <laughs> Five nil, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Hopefully that sort of, uh, yeah. I'm trying to put it into some kind of perspective, but it's hard to put my finger on that. I am finding it like that, really. You know. Yeah, Mike. I, one thing that has encouraged me recently is is the way that Guardiola has been speaking about, about uh, not just the the sides he's picking, but the but the, the reasons why he's doing it as well, and 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 the idea that you are in the team now based on your form. He's not he's not resting players. He's not rotating players. He's picking the players that deserve to play. And if you're someone like John <laughs> Stones, for instance, that I mean, that must make you feel ten foot tall. Yeah, he, he got, was it Porto? The press conference before Porto became very confusing. One minute he was rotating to get minutes in every player so that they're all fit. The next, if you're in form, you're playing. Well, it's it's one or the other, isn't it? But um, he, he's, he's yeah, as you say, been very vocal, strange, a, a different direction from Pep where he's, um, okay, he's been asked more specifically about individual players, which therefore he has to target his answer towards that player. Great, fine. But he's also highlighting form as a massive part. So um, John Stones is getting so much praise at the minute from the Manchester City manager, which is so good to see from John Stones and the Manchester City fans' perspective. They have always wanted John Stones to do well. He's had dips in form. I'm sure he'd admit himself. He's obviously had his injuries, but now he's back and there's been five clean sheets in the last five games in which he's played. But then you look at, Okay, well, if he's highlighting form, Pep Guardiola, is that a Merrick Laporte out because of that mistake he made against Spurs, which allowed Son to uh, get around the back of him and Diaz and and, and give Spurs the 1-0 lead? Um, Mares, everybody was criticising him, goes and bags a hat-trick against Burnley. Well, he's the man in form, and that explains why he starts. So, yeah, um, it's interesting analysing Pep Guardiola, reading between the lines exactly perhaps what he's saying and when, uh, and getting those minutes into the squad at the same time as also perhaps indicating that those aren't in the squad uh, need to step up their game. Yeah, how, how do you think uh, Diaz has done with Stones, Mike? Yeah, good. Uh, I like since Diaz has come in, you almost feel that uh, it's effectively two seasons without Vincent Company. I know it's only theoretically one, but the season before he wasn't much of a presence either, given his injuries. So City have missed that that other person to stand alongside what you think was. Uh, Laporte, but it now seems maybe it's to stand alongside Diaz. He's coming. Um, both of them still at times when you're watching them. I think there was a couple of incidences against Burnley and one against Fulham where you're watching, you're thinking, um, sorry, not Fulham, uh, one of the Champions League games where you're thinking, oh, hold on, they still need to get that communication right. They still need to find that little bit extra understanding. But the pair of them together, have, uh, yeah, ha- have worked well. And, and I mean, the ultimate way you judge it is, is clean sheets. And, and, and that is exactly what what City have done. If I can just add one more point on John Stones, everybody always questioned when he gets, you know, he's fine when there's a Fulham playing and they're not putting any pressure on you. But when you've got strikers who are bullying John Stones, making it hard, uh, can he step up? Can he do it? Can he still do the fancy turns on the ball? Can he still make the right decision? And he has. And that's been, you know, against Burnley, he was bullied by Rodriguez, Barnes and Wood. And each one of those, he came up on top of. And it's been so, so good to see. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing, though, Chris, in, in all of this is, 
as much as Guardiola is saying he's picking on form, it's 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 quite easy to do that when your games are against Fulham, Fulham and Burnley. It's in the same way that Pellegrini dropped heart. It was for Norwich at home. It wasn't for Chelsea away sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, when he's answering these questions, I think he's just... Uh, I wouldn't... I'd take it over the pinch of salt, to be honest. I mean, I don't think he's... I think he's resting De Bruyne because he's knackered, not because... You know, it's not it's not a form issue; it's a, a an energy issue. So yes, he's going to improve in form if you if you rest him because he quite literally needs the rest. And Stones, although you know his form's improving, he started um, Garcia before Stones the other night, didn't he? Um, Stones had to come on because he got injured. I mean, if it was just purely on form, then why wouldn't you pick Stones? Could that be because he's he's going to play Stones in the derby though? Well, this was it, wasn't it? Everybody looked at the team sheet yesterday and their first thought wasn't, oh, there's nine changes. It was, oh, now has that indicated who the Derby team will be? Well, exactly. But that's a manager's job, isn't it? He play. He, it, of course, form's going to be a factor. Of course, um, you know, it's, there's a multi, multiple variety of factors. So he can't to say it's just because of form or it's just because of whatever... Uh, it'd be a fool to just be sticking to that. I think he just answers questions because questions get put to him and people expect answers and, you know, com- column inches and all the rest of it. Like Cancelo, for instance, he seems to have been allowed to play himself into form. Yeah. There's a time where he wasn't playing well. And I don't know, I, I said it on this show, actually, that I thought he'd come good. And uh, just for the just from the his attitude and his body language and the kind of steely determination he seems to be out of him and lo and behold he's played himself into form and he's been allowed to so there's always ways there's balance you can... to be struck isn't there yeah. yeah absolutely it's all about balance like most things and obviously Pep's got to apply that in whatever way he sees fit and I think uh, the same applies to press conferences when he's getting questions asked on all sorts of things, he's going to go, yeah, yeah, that as well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just that you touched on on De Bruyne there, uh, Chris, as well. Um, I mean, the rest has done him good, hasn't he? I mean, he, he got an assist and a goal, uh, plus that that one off the bar that you know I I thought he was going to I thought was going to slide in, but he didn't quite get in. Um, mm. he's, he's back to good form, isn't he, Chris? He is rest needed. Seems suitably refreshed. Uh, he's got that. You know, when he he looked a bit downbeat, didn't he? Like he knew he was not firing on all cylinders and um, it was like well I'm just going to plod on and keep going and you could kind of see him blowing a little bit and yeah he seems to have that spring in his step a bit maybe a a goal in the derby will prove to be uh, pivotal and we'll see him kick on even more from there him up a bit more Mike he, he's I don't know your experience of when you're commentating for Radio Manchester you must be able to hear him in the stadium because he's he's one of the most angry people I've ever seen on a football pitch <laughs> yeah that documentary was an eye-opener wasn't it just how much everything hurts Kevin De Bruyne if it doesn't go right in any shape or form on or off the pitch in training as well it, 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 he is the key instigator isn't he in all of it um, you, must, you must spend half your life apologising for the things he shouted well uh, that might be picked <laughs> up on the mic mustn't you yeah, well, let, let yeah. me swear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, yeah, he, he's, he is vocal, but I mean that. I think that's kind of a surprise why Fernandinho was captain this year because he he can obviously, uh, 
you know, dictate the midfield. Fernandinho is that metronome. He's a safe pair of hands in in the midfield. Um, but but De Bruyne watching that making of him documentary and obviously he gets more game time than Fernandinho. Uh, uh, but yeah, I am surprised he he isn't the captain this year because as you say, when he's on the pitch, he's he's dictating everyone. Was it what was it? Was it the Liverpool game that was uh, where he's trying to take a corner and, and somebody was encroaching? He was just at the lines when look at where the fucking line is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Um, uh, we mentioned Raheem Sterling a bit earlier on as well, Mike. Um, how valuable will it be for him to to, to score and win the penalty in in, in the last game? Just just for after he's had a little bit of a dip in form, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, and, and 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 Pep had hinted. Uh, I think he he was put the question about Sterling in his form in a press conference, and he said, "Yeah," or, or was it Mares? And he said, "Yeah, but Mares needs goals. Sterling needs goals." Which, considering the last two years he's had, <laughs> isn't something you'd think of of questioning Raheem Sterling on. But you know, as soon as that's raised in a press conference, what does he do? He goes and scores against Fulham. He goes and scores against uh, uh, Marseille on on Wednesday night. So. Yeah, another got a particular derby. If he fight, if he finds the the net in three successive games, then then I think we can say Sterling is back. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's a coincidence, uh, Chris, that he he scored when he was played through on the right hand side, and he missed when he was played through on the left? A lot of City fans want to see him back on the right hand side, and then lo and behold, he scores from the right hand side. A lot of his goals, though, like I mean, if you're thinking like a trademark Sterling goal. Involves him cutting across the the edge of the box from the left, though you know, like he likes to pick the ball on the inside left channel, dummy a couple of players, drift across and whip one into the bottom right hand corner. He only, he only really scores two goals, doesn't he? That one that you've just described him from three yards out when the ball's played yeah. across the yard box. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, he ain't scoring that goal from starting on the right, is he? So <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy for him to play wherever, but. Uh, I would probably position him in uh, best the best place to create the scenario I've just gone through there. So kind of in, inside left. Yeah. Um, well, his goal on uh, Wednesday night was City's 1,000th goal at the Etihad. Uh, so I've been speaking to Adam Carter, who runs statcity.co.uk, just to look at some of the landmarks. Well, if you compare it to the um, games at our previous grounds, obviously we... Had we reached a thousand goals at Main Road in our four hundred and third match, so it's quite a sluggish by our standards, to be fair, because uh, that's forty-one matches longer uh, than it took us at Main Road, and it's three matches longer than it took us at Hyde Road, which was in our four hundred and forty-first. So we've achieved it now in our four hundred and forty-fourth. So the number fans amongst us will like that one, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, the one thing I was going to say, though, is that, that Main Road and uh, Hyde Road didn't have the enormous drag factor of the Stuart Pearce era, though, did it? So. <laughs> exactly. He, he's, he's still got the uh, lowest goals ratio for a manager at a home ground at 0.7 because we, we only scored 20 goals in his 27 matches. So that was, I think, uh, long living in everyone's memory still. Yeah. Um, so, one thousand goal was uh, was actually Raheem Sterling. It's been reported as as, uh, as Torres the opening goal, but it wasn't, was it? No, no. There was. I think there's a bit of confusion. I was uh, frantically searching through to check my numbers, and I quali- qualified it with Opta as well. Basically, um, if you cast your mind back, we had a European game against Straymore, and I think Bon Jovi was playing at the Etihad, so he had the pitch that night. <laughs> so we had to kindly ask our neighbours over in Barnsley at Oakwell if we could play there, and two 
home goals were scored there. So if, in terms of home goals, um, it was reported last night that it was a thousand goals since the Etihad had opened. But actually on the Etihad turf, it was actually the Sterling or slash the own goal that was the thousandth and not Torres, unfortunately. Was it, was it? Please don't tell me it was an own goal. It must have gone so down as Sterling's. It, it's gone down as an own goal on BT, Sky, UEFA and City's official website. Uh, so typical City, we get the thousandth landmark goal and it's an own goal um, from Gonzalez. Oh, I'm, 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 at least tell me some of the other landmark goals were were, were decent. Like who got the who got the hundredth and the five hundredth? Well, that sort of thing. Yeah, if you're looking for the hundredth, that would be uh, Georgia Samaras, uh, Charlton at home in February 2006. We won three two. Probably goal best remember game best remembered for Barton's thunderbolt into the top corner around the time he was trying to hand transfer requests in. But it was actually <laughs> Samaras that. Uh, Put us, I think he put us 2-1 up at that point. Um, if you're looking for the 500th goal, that came via Alvaro Negredo in a Boxing Day clash against Liverpool. We won 2-1 in Pellegrini's title charge uh, campaign and it kind of snuck over Mignolet. He kind of outside of his boot and it kind of trickled in to put us really in control of the title race at that point or certainly back in it. A, a real crucial goal. And then if you hark all the way back to the very first one, you're looking at Trevor Sinclair's opener against TNS all those many moons ago, 2003. Yeah, I had a, I had a little thing with Sky last night as well, where uh, they 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 tweeted that Trevor Sinclair's was the first goal at uh, at the Etihad uh, against. Uh, they 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 called them the New Saints, and I was like, yeah. no, they were called Total Network Solutions when we played them. That's <laughs> this is how this should work. You need to be historically accurate. Exactly. You wouldn't call, you wouldn't call Wimbledon MK Dons, would you? Exactly. So That's um, although same team, different name, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, just looking at the comparison with Main Road, obviously um, now it's it's one thousand goals up for the Etihad. Uh, how many yeah. did City make bef- in the eighty years that Main Road was was open? Uh, Main Road, we reached a total of three thousand four hundred and fifty eight goals um, during the one thousand seven hundred and fifty seven matches there. So still uh, some way to go there. But we actually played a neutral. Uh, match at Main Road and also two away matches at Main Road uh, because of uh, war and things yeah. like that. So um, the, the stats will get skewed again dependent on who classes what as a home game and away game because two of those away games were against United at Main Road. So that's an interesting little tidbit. Yeah, and I suppose as well, like when you think about how where the Etihad's going, the trajectory of goals that City are scoring, like they're scoring more goals at the moment than they were when they moved there. So like we expect to pass that sooner rather than later, wouldn't we? Yeah, exactly. Because if you look at the, it took us 257 games um, to get the first 500 goals, but it only took us 187 games to get the second 500 of the thousand. So we're actually at a rate of 2.7 goals a game now. And when we first moved to the stadium, we were at around 1.9 for that first 500. So the trajectory is up there. And again, under Pep, we've scored the most goals under Pep as a manager. Granted, he's taken charge of the most games in 116, but we've got 2.88 goals under him. If you compare that to, like I said before, Stuart Pearce is not a 0.7. We're going in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, Adam, that's wonderful. Um, just obviously, that these have all come from statcity.co.uk. Uh, are there more available if you if you go on the website? Yeah, if you just search Etihad Stadium on, on our website, there's loads more. You can you see it breaking down by player, by manager, by month of the year, by season that it was scored in, by how many substitutes, by how many hat-tricks, braces, things like that. So it's all there if they want it. involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Adam Carter from statcity.co.uk. Um, 
here's here's a trivia question for you both now. Um, two two teams that City have played at the Etihad but never scored against. Can you name them? Oh wow! Uh, what in all competitions? In, uh, yeah, all competitive matches, not including friendlies. Oh god, right. Old engineers in the FA Cup in. 1978. Oh, no, 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 because it's, 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 it's since 2003. All oh, right. I should listen to the question more, shouldn't I? Um, New engineers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How, can, can we have a clue? How many are in the league? Are, in fact, there can't uh, be any in the league. Yeah, there's none, none in the league. They're both. Uh, one is in Europe and one is in the FA Cup. Nil, nil. Middlesbrough. No, that would have played them in the league, wouldn't they, as well, as the FA Cup. I hate this because everyone thinks you've got you watch City every week, so you've got an encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of everything, and then you get shown up with things like this. Uh, <laughs> I, I, shall I give you a, a, a? I'll narrow it down a bit more. Mark Hughes was the manager for both occasions. Uh, yeah, that made it loads easier. Thanks, mate. Um, <laughs> Can you uh, give us a region of Europe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one's a Scandinavian team. Oh, it's not midget line. It is. It is oh, yeah, in the, yeah, penalties, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, they lost 1-0 at the Etihad. It's their only, it's their only uh, game against them there. And the other one was in the FA Cup that season. So, what is it, a lower lower league side? Yeah, it's, it's a lower league side that I've only played one game at the Etihad. No, or every FA Cup game in history has gone out of my head now. Um, <laughs> Grimsby. No. no. <laughs> I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. It was, yeah. it was Nottingham Forest. Oh. So I'll well, really appreciate being called a lower league side as well. Well, yeah, after, yeah, after the history, uh, unfortunately, it's double yeah. European Cup winners, lower league side, Nottingham Forest. <laughs> um, let's bring it, bringing it, kicking, kicking and screaming back to the uh, to the actual topic of the day. Um, Sergio Aguero, Mike, uh, nice little cameo from him against Marseille because uh, I was I was starting to get a little bit worried that we might not see him back at his full potential but the, the signs were there that okay it's still a long way to go but the signs were there that he can recover from this injury yeah and what was nice he came on he obviously got the goal it's not only the finest goal he, he ever scored but you know it, it will give him confidence um he what was nice is it, it sort of showed I don't want to say the old Aguero because it's just Aguero but there was a moment the ball was played to him and he did that lovely drop of the shoulder, turn to the right and head to the corner of the penalty area. Move that he, he is so synonymous with Aguero, that little low centre of gravity turn, I'll face the goal, I'll get, I'll try and get a shot on target. And it's that, that, um, that was so nice to see. Look, this is a man who's played 12 minutes throughout uh, the end of October through to playing against Marseille. Uh, on Wednesday night, so you know he's he's doubled that just alone against Marseille. So he's not going to start the derby. Pep Guardiola said that. But if if City can get that early goal, take the pressure off Aguero a bit, and bring him on in the last say half hour, that is a huge. Just regardless of whether you like Jesus and the work he does, Sterling's capabilities, Mares' capabilities, Foden's capabilities. If you've got Aguero in that starting eleven. I feel every Manchester City fan instantly stands a little taller and gets a little bit more confident in what that side will do that day. Yeah, and on the other side as well, the United players, it has an effect on them as well. Yeah, uh, Chris, he, he needs to be managed carefully though now, doesn't he? Because given uh, certainly how many games City are going to play in, sh- in such a short space of time this season and given the injury he's had and his history of, in- of, of, of coming back from injuries, um, it, it's going to be a case of, of getting back into that team but nice and slow and easy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, slowly, slowly. Um, I think there might be a good argument for Delap 
having a bit more of a, an involvement in the first team squad, given the situation up front that we've got. Uh, I mean, there's a bit of a question mark at the moment over Aguero's ability to, well, not his ability, but his kind of physicality and whether he's got the, um, the you know, whether he's got the the freshness to, to carry on in the way that he has done. Um, he seems to be getting slightly more injury prone. It's only natural as you get older to get more injuries, to be a little less uh, fresh and have that vigour that he that he's had for, for so long with us. I mean, I would hate to see him get kind of phased out. I want him to come back to his full potential, not potential, his full, uh, you know, firing all cylinders. But, I mean, what do you think? Do you think he's... I just think it's an, an absolutely horrible thought that you've, yeah. just, that you've just reminded me that we are actually nearer to Sergio Aguero's end at City than we than we are to his start. Well, very much so. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of... He's not on the... Uh, He's not on the ascent, is he? He's on the other side of the mountain on, on the way down. So just have to make sure that uh, we manage that really, really carefully. But we need a contingency in case he does pick up another injury and he's out for another. Because, I mean, throughout his time when he's been, you know, in, in his best years with us, he's still he's still been out for quite a few occasions with lengthy spells with injuries. And I don't know, I just feel that Maybe blooding the lap a few more times. Maybe bringing him in that game in Europe against Marseille. I feel well, might I was going to say this, Chris, because we we were a little surprised at the strength of that City team against Marseille, given given that it was a complete dead rubber. Yeah, and given that you know Pep's complained about protecting the players and campaigning so fervently for the um, increased number of subs on the bench, and yeah, it, he's a man full of contradictions, isn't he? <laughs> um, Mike, is he, does, he, does he actually have a really difficult game to play here, Guardiola? Because he's got to not only juggle the, the first teamers that he's got available, keep them all happy and keep them fresh, but then to, to then also have to you know, keep, appease the fans with putting in three or four youngsters as well. It's, like, it's, it's, a, it's so many plates to spin, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was a shock, I think, not a shock, surprise that he didn't play any last night, even when the game was at 1-0, 2-0. You know, there are Premier League games where if it gets to three or four nil, then fine, bring them on because there is no pressure. But the you know the group was won uh, through to the last sixteen. Marseille were one two nil down. They were going to struggle, so it was a chance, and that that was a surprising thing. Um, th- there's not only pressure on Pep Guardiola, but but from from actual physically playing. But this academy costs a lot of money to build and to bring through two hundred million pounds to build and and the rest on the players at the moment. So. Then needs to start seeing a line of success coming through, and and great that Phil Foden's done it, great that Eric Garcia's done it, but you you do need to see your Delaps, your Palmers, your Bernabes all coming through to 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 get their opportunity. Now going back to Leon Delap, is he is he the right man to replace Aguero when Aguero goes eventually? Maybe, but there's such a difference between. Aguero with all his experience and Delap with hardly any. And even if you play Delap in every game from now until the end of the season, it's still not enough experience for him to lead that line, I don't think, for Manchester City. So there is going to have to be a stopgap in there. Is it Jesus? I don't think it is. Um, given what we've seen off previous history, he, he's a different type of player. Um, Sterling and Foden and Mares are all you know, not Aguero in his role. So it's, it is very tough. Um and Pep Guardiola's got to manage this and got to manage it well. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see for sure. Um, but now moving on, uh, the game with Fulham was City's designated Rainbow Laces match, a campaign designed at promoting equality for everyone in football, regardless of their sexuality or gender identity. I've been hearing from some LGBTQ plus City fans to examine the role that Rainbow Laces plays for them. This season, each club is marking their Rainbow Laces match on their home game closest to the 9th of December. For City's men, this was the 2-0 win over Fulham. Hi everyone, I'm Esme Morgan of Manchester City Women. As a club, we're committed to promoting equality, diversity and inclusion for all of those associated with Manchester City. And we are very proud to once again be supporting Stonewall and Rainbow Laces. It's the turn of the women on Sunday with their home match with Arsenal. Many of the team, including Esme Morgan, wore the laces in their 3-0 win over Everton last weekend too. Captains of all our teams, the men's, women's and academy, will be wearing special armband at games and players will be wearing rainbow laces in their boots. Our managers will also be wearing special pin badges in support. Marcus Patterson is from the LGBTQ plus charity Stonewall. The campaign aims to for inclusion and celebration for all LGBT people in sport. What might seem like a small act can make an incredible difference in people's lives. You know, sport has the power to bring people together, build communities and create a sense of belonging. And Marcus explains that it's for that reason that campaigns like Rainbow Laces are essential. Last year, 12 million people in the UK saw the campaign. And from that, around 7 million people feel more positive about LGBT inclusion in sport as a result. Uh, whilst I can't speak for um, the Premier League in, uh, in particular, uh, I do know that homophobia, biphobia and transphobia happens in sports grounds all around the country. And from that, we know that four in 10 LGBT plus people think that a sporting event isn't welcome for them. That's something that needs to change. It's easy to say that politics should be kept away from football, but the voices saying that are often the ones belonging to people who can easily turn a blind eye. This is Kath. She's a lesbian City fan and explains why Rainbow Laces is important for her and others like her. Inclusion is a journey in any workplace, including football, and nobody can be their best in their job if they don't feel fully comfortable. That goes for fans watching the game too. If you're constantly on edge in case of abuse, you won't enjoy the match experience as much. Phil, a bisexual City fan in his 20s, agrees that football has a big role to play. These campaigns shouldn't be important and football shouldn't need to be taking this sort of educational role, but the world being as it is, they're massive. If the football industry and football fans as a wider body are going to change, these campaigns are the necessary first step. David is from City's LGBTQ plus fan group, the Canal Street Blues. He goes further and explains why that visibility is important for some members of the community. It's a, it's a mechanism uh, sort of to let those people that are LGBT plus uh, amongst us know that it's okay. We all know, well I certainly do, I know people that uh, you know always thought that, oh I can't, I can't go to the football, I can't be a City fan and I can't be LGBTQ plus as well, and obviously that's not true. It's been great to see things like the Canal Street Blues flag in every televised City game. It's been uh, right behind the goal, you can't really miss it. There'll be many who go to the Etihad when fans are allowed back into games, who are still trying to work out their sexuality or gender identity, or who are yet to be open with their friends and family about it. For every LGBTQ plus person, that experience and timeline is different. Football hasn't always been the most welcoming sport if you're not a straight white man. That's Jason, a pansexual City fan in his 20s who is still in the closet. We've changed his name to keep him anonymous. Even recently in the past couple of years when clubs have like tweeted their support of this, 
idea matter. The reading the comments is just oh man, it makes you just makes you so sad. You try not to read them, but like the Daily Mail comments and stuff like that, and you're just thinking it's just something out of the 18th century what people are saying. Jason explains his experiences of being in the closet and going to the Etihad. You do get the odd slur, the odd like, oh my god, he looks so gay. You just kind of have to roll your eyes at it. If I did get kind of worked up about it, it would probably out me. So you don't get young people saying that really. I think that is just an older generation. So I think education about these sorts of issues in schools has definitely worked. How does that compare to other fans' experiences of City's home games? It's pretty good for LGBTQ plus fans at the Etihad, I think. We've only had a couple of negative experiences but always felt safe enough to challenge the behaviour. One occasion was a drunk City fan behind us using a homophobic slur to abuse an official. One death stare from the wife soon had him mumbling apologies. I've never had any grief. I can't really remember seeing anyone harassed, but at the same time, I've lost count of the times I've heard homophobic slurs thrown around, whether it's a club in general or aimed at a specific player. If I've ever heard anything um, inappropriate, it's it's never tended to grow. People tend to get looked at a little bit funny and you know stewards and you know if i've seen any heard any discrimination some games where it gets a little bit nasty um they seem to be on top of it and uh you know that's that's good that's what we need to see for jason there's another aspect of his footballing life that he still has to be guarded about too when he's putting on his boots on a saturday or sunday morning no one that i play with does know aside from the manager and i wouldn't really want them to know it was not the most welcoming environment for this kind of person and it's just not it would be nice to be totally who I am and able to discuss things with people in, in a manner of who I really am but that's a perfect world and we don't live in one. This is why the display of the rainbow symbol can be important. It can tell LGBTQ plus people that the environment that they're in is welcoming and that they're in a safe space. This is what makes the visibility of the campaign important as Marcus from Stonewall explains. Seeing someone wear rainbow laces can change people's lives and I can I can talk to my own personal experience. I know that um, having played football my whole life, that seeing uh, other people wear rainbow laces, it allows me to feel more relaxed um, and also focus more on the game because I can bring my whole self to, to football and so I can perform better and therefore the team performs better. As far as we can tell, none of the men's players from any of the Premier League's matches last weekend wore the laces. Should more be done to encourage players to wear them? Here's David from the Canal Street Blues. I don't think that people need to be guilt-tripped into wearing these symbols if they want to wear them. Um, I think the more that do wear them, it's great because it means that they've chosen to do that and it will become more normalised and it won't be an issue where you have to ask, is it a big thing for the players to wear the laces? But as Phil says, players can't be forced to wear them. I'd love to see more players wearing them. Frankly, it's so simple and easy, a gesture of empathy and support, it's not asking much. At the same time, though, it can't be mandatory. That removes too much meaning, it has to be a personal individual decision. And that's why Kath says she likes the Rainbow Captain's armband. There's no excuses not to wear it. But she, like David and Phil, would like to see more of the men's players change their laces too. In the first couple of years, there were hardly any. I was forever pausing match of the day to squint at the picture to check. I don't know why more players don't. Do boot deals get in the way, or are the players worried about the laces ruining their perfect touch? I don't see any reason why more players don't wear them. 
Unless, of course, they're concerned about what it says about them for some reason. Marcus from Stonewall is diplomatic about why the numbers of players wearing the laces are so low. We understand that um, sometimes laces uh, can't be changed. I know that actually a lot of boots now are coming out with um, laceless boots. But, you know, it's more about what people are doing behind the scenes as well. You know, laces are a great symbol of solidarity. But you can also maybe wear a rainbow armband or something visual on your shirt. So despite the low uptake, it's the campaign's messaging getting across. Kath has mixed feelings. It's certainly been successful in raising awareness and media have been getting better about sharing personal stories and lived experiences and therefore why it matters. Sometimes though I think we've regressed as a society as a whole and particularly what's expressed on social media. Online anonymity seems to create a sense of entitlement to abuse folk for whatever reason. So when City turned the badge rainbow, out come the trolls. But that, of course, is why campaigns like this must continue. Phil would like to see clubs do more than simply change the badge and post a tweet. The league and the club seem to treat them as performance pieces rather than opportunities for genuine support and allyship. It's all one good putting some flags up, posting on social media. But if you're not even going to get involved in the replies, if you're not even going to support people in the comments, not engage in any meaningful level. A recent Twitter thread by Christian Harold Baker, who's working on the social media for the Premier League, explained how they respond. Instead of giving the negative comments oxygen, they reply to every positive tweet in order to float those to the top of the thread. David from Canal Street Blues says football can be used to change the way people think about others. My personal opinion, LGBTQ plus issues are lagging way behind in football, just the way it is at the moment. It's the way society has been as well and more messaging. City have been brilliant uh, supporting us at Pride every year with a float. This is just what more what we need because as society changes and you know new generations come along and these sort of uh, messages need to get across and will get across. On the weekend that Millwall fans booed as the players took a knee to protest against racial injustice, we're reminded that there is still a long way to go for social change. Football can be such an important tool in aiding that change, but it will only work if people, players, clubs and organisations actively get involved. Hi, this is Paul Dickoff and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Look there at the Rainbow Laces campaign for this year. Uh, Time now to look ahead at uh, the coming games for City. United at Old Trafford on Saturday and then West Brom at the Etihad on Tuesday. Um, Chris, uh, the Derby pitch is a funny one because uh, United quite clearly are a shambles and yet City are going in to the Derby a point behind them. It's a weird one, isn't it? Uh, It's going to be horrible, that game. (laughs) <laughs> just going to be absolutely horrible they're going to be hurting after going out of Europe and they always seem to manage to raise uh, their game against us and yeah we just don't seem sometimes to have that um, fire in our bellies we just think well we'll just play our game What if we do everything that we should do then it'll be fine you know rock up thinking just uh, just play it like a normal game. And United don't sometimes. I mean, they bought, beat us, what, three times last season? Yeah, three ty- three out of four last season were United wins. And it, not only that, they were deserved United wins as well. That's, that, right. 
I don't I don't understand how that happens because Solskjaer clearly, Mike, looks so far out of his depth, it's untrue. I don't get it. <laughs> he, he has this uh, habit, doesn't he, Solskjaer, of every time the pressure is piled on him, uh, as it was before the derbies last season, uh, as, as it is this season, uh, that when they have a terrible, terrible result, they seem to play Manchester City and they seem to win. The only, arguably, Manchester City won the most important game of that last season, which was the first leg of the semi-final of the League Cup. They won it 3-1. It was enough to see them to the final. But, um, yeah, but it's the beauty of derbies, isn't it? You can't read them. You can't predict them. And and, and Oli is up against it. But but as you've alluded to, so, so are Manchester City. So is Pep Guardiola. The fact they're a point behind United implies that... You know, if, if if United fans consider their season not going well, just how well is City season's going? Yeah, I mean, here's here's the thing though, Chris. Here's a here's an element of confidence from last season. Okay, as Mike says, you know, um, United won three of the four derbies. The one that City did win though, City was so good. They were so good in that game, mm. and that seemed to weirdly let us take the foot off the pedal in the in the return leg, which kind of begs the question if he's because he made some big changes didn't he Pep in the second game didn't he I, I don't I seem remember, to remember I remember um I, I, yeah you might I remember Bravo was in goal so it was it had been a league cup team yeah so I don't know it's it's weird that he has that attitude to the second leg of a derby um but not um in in Europe I don't know <laughs> if the European situation he's just thinking record points total this will look great on my CV but I don't know. With the derby, United are a point above us. That should provide uh, enough motivation for us to go in there, like you know, snarling and growling, which I really want to. I really want us to get stuck into them and uh, prove that there is a bit of a, a gulf of class between the two teams. Yeah, Mike. There's this stat that um, gets gets published every time City are, are behind at half time. It's that they've they've only won one away game from a losing position at half time in God knows how long. Um, United this season seem to keep coming from behind, apart from obviously Tuesday night. Um, that almost to me it suggests like the first goal might be crucial, but then the second goal might be even more crucial. Yeah, even on Tuesday night, they nearly did it, didn't they? Uh, they only just fell short in the end. Um, yeah, it, it, the early goal. It will be an absolute nerves, you know, nerve settler, uh, settler, if, if you will. Uh, but I, from knowledge, as you say, of watching United and, and knowing what they 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 can do, is you almost need City to be two up uh, at half time to to be confident of of progressing. Um, the first goal is important, but I, I'm in a line with you that the second goal is is probably even more important. Just looking at, at the defence as well, Mike, who do you think plays? Do you think it will be a, a Stones-Diaz partnership again? Ah, funnily enough, I asked this question on Twitter this morning. Um, I, I, If I was Pep, and who am I to tell Pep what team to pick? But yes, I, I, th- I, I would go. If, if he's banging on about form as much as he is at the minute, it has to be Stones and Diaz, does it not? I don't know. Laporte, fine, played, played Wednesday night against Marseille, but uh, it's one game back. And he's got to get into a rhythm with either Stones or Diaz again. I'm not questioning Laporte's capabilities. I'm sure he could do it. But when you've got two who have played together familiarly over the last couple of weeks, have got to know each other, have played well, have kept those clean sheets. Uh, I, I, uh, Yeah, I, I think Stones and Diaz is the way forward. And, and here's another reason, I think, to be confident, Chris. Um, 
what United's game plan last season was very much let City have the ball and hit them on the counter-attack. Uh, this season, certainly since the arrival of, uh, of Diaz, City have been so much better in coping with the counter-attack. Apart from Spurs. Apart from Spurs. One-off, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd like to think so. But I think we just need to, you know, you need to learn from those mistakes. And if we are doing, then then very good. Because we can't afford to succumb to the same, um, the same tactics again and again. I mean, I don't, I don't see United varying their tactics against us that much because I don't think if they try and out players at our game, then that would work. So I don't think I think they'll revert to type against us. And yeah, it is how we cope with it, and uh, it'll be a stern test as to whether what you've said is true. Because if we don't do it against Spurs and then we don't do it against United, then that kind of puts paid to the theory that we are coping with it better. So we'll certainly be in a better position to to comment on the accuracy of that, I think, after after the weekend. There's, there's been a run of clean sheets after Spurs, though, Chris. There has, but, you know, we've not played um, the best teams, not that United are, but uh, the calibre of, of teams compared to Spurs hasn't been... Uh, up to that standard, so yeah, I'm kind of kind of reserving judgment. I'm quite quietly confident. I'm more confident now than I, than I have been um, in the last few days. Let's. But, uh, I was going to say, let's see how that is on Saturday morning, though, because the, the the rule the rule of a derby is that you get more and more confident in the week building up to it, and then on the day of it, it just all disappears, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what would you two do? What would you two do defensively? What would you do? I'd, I'd agree with you, Mike. I'd stick. Uh, I'd stick with both Diaz and uh, and Stones. I think I, I, for all that Guardiola's been saying about uh, for because I think a lot of his form comments were aimed at, at, at trying to pick Laporte up and, and and give Laporte a bit of a kick up the backside. Um, but I think the, inner, the the kind of inadverted effect is that it, it's it's given Stones this lift as well. I don't think you can. I don't think you can then take Stones out for this game because I think what the, what does that say to John Stones at that point? I, I just think it's. It's such a. It would be such a vote of confidence for him to go with him again. I think you've you've got to do it, and if he's been playing well, then all the better as well. Mm. No, I'd agree with that. Um, it would be a bit of a kick in the teeth, or well, a kick in the ego for for Stones to effectively drop him for the derby. Although, if that wasn't a factor, um, if he did pick Laporte, I'd be more than happy with that. Uh, but yeah, I think given the the human side of it I think uh, it's going to have a detrimental effect on Stones to not play him and the fact that he has been playing well means that yeah he does he does deserve it yeah and uh, there's also uh, the West Brom game on on Tuesday night as well Mike um, it's it, it almost feels like this is a stage of the season now where City are starting to put a run together so if they can get through the derby and win it then it the kind of like the, they're, they're really laying the foundations for for getting back to the top of the table aren't they yeah, because uh, it's West Brom, then it's Southampton. I know cup game with Arsenal, fine, but Newcastle in the league, Everton in the league, all of those teams, particularly West Brom, are out of form. But Southampton, Everton, unpredictable. So yes, they could beat City, but at the same time, you would back the Blues to win all of those games. Newcastle at home as well. So it, it yeah, if if City can ha- come through December, I'll say unbeaten, then. Then, then, yeah, things are looking up. Yeah, Chris, it's it's important at this stage, I guess, to to capitalise on these games, given that City's start wasn't fantastic, but also other teams are also now starting to hit put, uh, uh, sticky patches, aren't they? 
Well, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> it's funny we were saying about West Brom next week, though. Did you see West Brom against, was it Chelsea they played? The 3-3. Three, three. Yeah. Yeah. They look decent. Um, and they do... in 11, though. Pardon? They've only got one win in 11, though. Well, yeah, so surely they're due one. I mean... <laughs> it doesn't work like that, football. <laughs> no, I know, but I just, if, even if we win the derby, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself by uh, saying that we will, but if we do, um, that could be a, a real banana skin, West Brom, because they'll be absolutely fighting tooth and nail, and um, they've got a manager there who really instills a bit, of, a bit of grit in his team. So, yeah, I'm quite wary of West Brom. Yeah, how how important is momentum? Do you think, Mike? Huge, absolutely huge in in football. And uh, that that just to bring in the boring journalistic side to that, you speak to so many managers, so many players, uh, and it really does does influence them. And it, it's, I remember speaking to Darren Ferguson once uh, when he was manager of Doncaster Rovers, and he was actually bizarrely turning momentum so keen to win the last five games of a season, um, or, or at least get a point from them when they were relegated down to League Two because it would kickstart their League Two season going into the next campaign. So every, everybody looks at momentum and how important it is. It's just a confidence builder, isn't it? If you're rolling into games and your manager can manage you well enough not to be overconfident, then you start to believe again and start to pick it up. And that that was so key uh, in the Centurion season when time after time after time, a bit like Liverpool last year, a bit like United used to do under Fergie, it, it's the last-minute winners. But you have that belief that you can still do it. Even at 90 minutes, if you're drawing one all and only three minutes of added time go up, you know you have the ability to create one more chance. By doing that, that's how you win titles. That's how you win games and that's how you win trophies. Yeah. Do you see that from City this season, Chris? Do you see Do you see City getting to somewhere near that level that they used to have in, in 17, 18 and 18, 19? I don't think we've got the players to get to that level, but... You can certainly get in the get in the habit of winning and gaining momentum and getting that belief from stringing a few games together and then a few games becomes ten games and then if you've won ten games you know it, it goes on you pick up good habits don't you the hab- the habitual nature of winning and like Mike's saying that that belief to keep going till the last minute if you've won a couple of games in the last minute then there's no way you give up even if you're you know, losing or drawing with a minute to go yeah. in the subsequent games because you quite rightly know that it that know that it's there. It's these good habits that these players are totally good enough to pick up. I don't think we're capable of being at that that amazingly high level we were at because we simply don't have uh, as good a team. But given the the nature of the league this season, we're certainly capable of stringing a better run together or as good a run as, as anybody else in there. It's quite yeah. wide open and uh, we're definitely in with a chance. Definitely. Right. Uh, it's charity bet time. We had a winner on last week's show, so congrats to Alan Bates, who correctly predicted a 2-0 win over Fulham. That's taken us to £230 raised with William Hill for the Christie, a cancer treatment hospital in Manchester. Each of the panel is getting a £10 correct score single on City's games. Uh, we start off with the Manchester derby. Um, Chris, what are you having for that one? Two to the mighty blues, one to the dirty reds. Uh, that is seven to one and seventy pounds. If you're right, Mike, where are you going? Uh, I was going to say two one, but then you told me I wasn't allowed two one. So two nil. Well, uh, the, is, keep the run going. 
Yeah, the, the good news is that it, uh, if it does furnish 2-0, uh, then it's uh, £10 more. Uh, it's 8-1, to one, so £80 if you're right. Uh, I've gone for the traditional 3-1 win because uh, that seems to be quite a popular score on the charity bet for winners, and I want to win some money. Uh, and it's, it's also a very popular derby score, isn't it? it? Is, I wonder yeah. if that's the most common victory in a derby. 3-1 always seems to be the case. I, I wonder if it's the most common victory of of any number of victories, you know. If if you, if you were to take a, a sample of football over, I don't know, 10 years or so, if the most common winning margin is 3-1, I wonder, I, I, I just, I, I have that hunch. Uh, anyway, it's 11-1, uh, 11-1 and £110 if I'm right. Uh, Chris, what have you gone for for West Brom? Well, I want to win some money, so I've gone for 3-1. <laughs> uh, it's 10-1 to <laughs> and uh, £100. Uh, Mike, you've gone a bit more extravagant than that, haven't you? Yeah, one nil. Richard done own goal. Oh no, sorry. <laughs> Separate game. Uh, yeah. Four nil. Four nil. I've said <laughs> uh, thirteen to two and sixty-five pounds. And get this one because I've gone three nil, and I had to get my calculator out for this one because that's twenty-four to five, uh, which is forty-eight. What sort of odds is that? What's no. that? I know it's <laughs> 48 quid if I'm right on that Just, one. just so, call it 48 to 1 if you're going to be as complicated as that. 24 I, to 5? Yeah, what 20, is that? 24 to 5. Uh, so 48 pounds. <laughs> over to gamble. Prices can change. And have a look at begambleaware.org for more information on responsible gambling. Now it's time to hear from Howard Hawking. He's talking about the peril at Lafayette United ahead of the derby. Hello, and hot off the press, or at least at the time I typed these words, if not when you heard them, it's time to laugh at United again, something that will never get boring, repetitive or jaded. Sadly, this is not quite the golden age for this pursuit, as Ole's random steering at his rusting E-type Jaguar, a car that was once best in class but is now showing its age, especially as the exhaust keeps falling off, brings great results along with the bad ones. And of course a derby looms on the horizon, as the inferior side no doubt catches the high line of City on the counter-attack numerous times. It was ever thus, it seems. But with Ruben Diaz barking orders, we stand a better chance of making our superiority count. United are, after all, something of an away side, at least in the league, so we'll have to come out to play, whether their tea is ready or not. Anyway, in a vain attempt to be seen as a serious purveyor of football on Twitter... No laughing at the back, please. I chickened out and deleted most of my United tweets late on Tuesday night. The Thursday night Channel 5 ones, previous proclamations that United are back, that sort of thing. I'm trying not to be that person anymore, but perhaps more pertinently, the thought of Saturday was playing on my mind. You mock at your peril nowadays, as it will at some point come back to bite you on your derriere. I mean, they actually posted the Channel 5 banner at 3-0, and within two minutes United had scored twice, so lesson learnt. I am a curse. As for United, I'm actually looking forward to their next set of financial results. There will be boisterous talk of strong Twitter likes and sponsor announcements, but a new noodle partner in Malaysia does not cover over the gaping cracks. The pandemic has cost everyone money, every club, but it has cost United more than most. And in a few weeks, the Glazers will help themselves to another £11 million dividend. And that apparently is £4 million more than a team gets for winning the Europa League. There will still be money to attempt to put right mistakes. There will always be money for United. But just maybe it will not be as free-flowing as it once was. With every misstep, they chip away at that war chest. I mean, were they ever really in for Sancho? Was the money there? Are they now finally having to tighten their belts? Time will tell. What they still fail to grasp is that their name alone won't fix their problems. Talk of DNA and history in the United and its rusting stadium will no longer attract the world's best players on its own. 
and its manager certainly won't, unlike City's. They need success too, like any other team. They are the football version of a celebrity saying, do you know who I am when being turned away from a full restaurant? Yeah, we know who you are, United, but we don't care. You can't wash with your hair, pout and fix everything. No expect employing a manager because he scored an important goal or two in the past for you to turn things around. Welcome to the real world. The sooner you realise that set philosophy, structure and long-term plan allied with signings that are made to improve the squad rather than to make a statement, the quicker you return to the top. And I'm amazed that seven years since Alex Ferguson retired, you're still to realise this. Long may it continue. Not that City have any excuse for complacency or gloating right now. Buy enough good players and you will get some great results, and City remain below United in the table. Hopefully not for long, of course. And considering City got through their Champions League group, conceding a single goal in the process, and matching the English record for points in the group stage with 16, and it's probably fair to say one Manchester team had an easier group than the other. But then I doubt City would have spectacularly messed up the group United had. Because they don't rely on individual brilliance to get themselves out of a mess week after week after week. And more to the point, Sergio Aguero is back and looks like he's been training at Bayern Munich for six months, such as his physical bulk. And just look at his face having scored. Those that write him off do so at their peril. After all, when City are scoring from a corner, anything is possible. But as United stumbled, the other game in the group had its own talking points as both teams left the field after accusations of racist language from the fourth official. I've read plenty on what is alleged to have happened, but I do not have the full story like most of us. Cultural differences in the complexity of language, says one side, dehumanising, racist and disrespectful claim the other. Now the world of football has a lot of work still to do, to deal with and offer support for those that need it. When dealing with issues such as homophobia, racism, mental health and more, it is a constant process and it always will be. But at least I see progress, at least now we talk about it. Players take the knee, but now we must do more than that and many do. At least now players feel empowered to leave the pitch, which is exactly what they should do as poultry fines don't work, nor the odd stadium closure. I mean, who would notice one of them right now? And I include myself in one of those people who has reassessed how they act and what is acceptable and what is not. After all, it is people like me who have never experienced the aforementioned issues and has in many ways breezed through life that needs the education most, the awareness. 20 years ago, would I have done anything if I heard racist abuse from a city fan sat near me in the ground? I'm almost certain I would have turned you the way, along with most of those around me, if not everyone. Nowadays, no chance. Thankfully, I've heard nothing at all in my self-stand seat, but one day I will, it will never go away, it is there. And I hope I'm a better person than the one from 20 years ago. And I think the game as a whole is in a better position to confront its issues, though there is a long journey ahead. So steps in the right direction, let's just keep taking them. Even Millwall fans at the game against QPR seem to take that message in. In these times more than any other we need compassion and to look out for each other. That doesn't mean we can't have a right good laugh at United when they drop into Europa League. After all, some things are timeless, some things are sacred. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast and carry on doing so. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was Howard Hawking and we're going to finish with a couple of questions for the panel in Ask the Panel. Uh, get in touch on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Uh, first up is Langston Sterling on Twitter who says, uh, would love to hear you discuss Angelino and his potential role back at City after a fantastic performance against United and a wonderful form of late. Can we do anything to get him back? Would he solve our left-back woes? Uh, Mike, what do you reckon? 
would he solve the left back issues? No, I think Manchester City have better left backs uh, available to use now, and I'm going to put Jao Cancelo in there. I know he's not a natural left back; he, he's right footed, but he has filled in behind Mendy brilliantly. Uh, I'm concerned for Zinchenko. I don't quite know where he now sees himself in the team. Um, if it, if the if the pecking order does go Mendy, then Cancelo. That, I know Zinchenko is not a left back either. He's converted from left midfield, but he must feel down. Angelino is probably still at the at the bottom of that. Are we looking at just one good game uh, for Leipzig? The German league's a little bit different. Uh, look, he can still come back. Of course he can, but he's got a big fight on his hands for that place if he wants it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Chris, is is that you know City have got rid of him twice now. Um, that probably says something about where he fits in Guardiola's plans, doesn't it? It does, I think. And uh, I think his recent interview says a lot about where he sees himself as well. Um, he didn't name names, but he did say that he appreciates managers who give him confidence and then went on to uh, say how happy he was playing and playing well and with confidence <laughs> at, at Leipzig. So, yeah, I, I think he might have been treated a little bit harshly. Um, I don't know if he got the full opportunity to show his ability with City because, well, purely to the fact he didn't play a massive amount of games and he's played a lot for uh, Red Bull and played really well. So I know it's a different league, literally, but I don't know if he got given the opportunity he might have needed to shine, but he's shining elsewhere and I think that's uh, how it's going to stay, unfortunately. Final question for this week, Peter Murphy on the emails. Uh, he asks, uh, with Taylor Harwood Bellis committing to stay in at City, should he be getting the time and experience in the first team that Garcia is being given if Garcia is not willing to sign a contract extension and is going to leave for Barcelona? Uh, what do you reckon, Chris? Yes, yes, yes. Yes and yes. Yes squared. Yes cubed. All the yeses. <laughs> as many yeses as you can, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's two more. Oh, yeah. Um, Mike, is uh, do, you, do you see... You can understand the problems that City have getting youth players to the first team, given the number of games that they have that are that are important games that they have to win. There's no kind of no wriggle room in there. Um, where do you see Taylor Harwood Bellis fitting in? Uh, I'm just going to throw another yes in there. By the way, I, I think he, <laughs> he, he most certainly he should be a, a, you know in Guardiola's plans more than Eric Garcia. I'm not saying completely throw a Garcia out the squad. Um, sorry, what was the question? I got sidetracked with my own amount of yeses. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> where Taylor Harwood Bellis's future might sit with City, given uh, yeah. the defensive options they've got. Um, I think, yeah, this is difficult, isn't it? I, I, I think he needs to be on the bench maybe most weeks for City. He's clearly not yet going to get in front of Laporte, Diaz and John Stones. Maybe a concern for Taylor Harwood Bellis is the, the age of those as well. They're all mid-20s. Um, which is is obviously if they're going to play the next three, four, five years at Manchester City is going to hamper how many opportunities he gets. But he needs to be in and around the first team as he is. He needs to um, start being on the bench a bit more. And and maybe once in a while, because injuries are going to come back to the squad, they come to haunt every squad, but maybe once in a while do play your West Broms, your Fulhams, when there is less pressure, when that team's clearly going to come to the Etihad and play to get a draw at best. They're not coming to win it. Um, and that might be just a good opportunity. A bit like Zach Steffen in, against Marseille is he's not going to get in front of Edison, but he is going to get chances and just be ready to take them when, when you when you do get that opportunity. Yeah. Do you, um, have you seen much of him? Do you reckon a, a bright future for him, Mike? 
Uh, well, I've seen the, obviously the games he's played. Have I seen enough of him to convince me he's you know the next Vincent Company? No, I haven't. Um, but but that only becomes due to the nature of the opposition. Your your Prestons, your Oxfords, uh, etc., aren't going to provide that test that your Manchester United's, Chelsea's, and Liverpool's do. So uh, um, th- look, there's promise, and and City don't award contracts out for no reason. So so he obviously has got potential that they see in the future. Um, quite where that is right now is a little difficult to say, I think. Yeah. You'd think he'd spoken to Pep before committing to stay. I mean, does committing your future to City necessarily mean just being at City as a loan move? I know it has to be the right club and the right move, doesn't it? You don't want to just go to some, um, you know, Alamo-style relegation outfit getting yeah. hammered. They're odd, they're odd with... Loans, though, aren't they? Manchester mm. City. They're not Chelsea. They don't throw out fifty players a year on loan. They, that like everybody put pressure on Pep to to loan Foden out, and he said no, he's going to stay here. And they've done the same with Garcia. It might, by the looks of it so far, do the same with Taylor Harwood Bellis because I'm sure there's a League One outfit sniffing around him who'd be happy to have him at the back there. Uh, Cole Palmer, Bernabe, Dilap. They've all could have options to go elsewhere for now, and yet the, the club like to keep them in house, which, yeah. which is interesting. You tend, you tend to go out on loan at City. That tends to be your end, end of your City career, doesn't it? That's the it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Angelino being the prime example, perhaps. Yeah. Um, that's it for this week's Blooming Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to listen to a little bit more, um, we're looking at the players who have featured for both City and United in the Premier League era on our Patreon bonus show. That's available for everyone who backs $2 per month. That's about £1.50 in UK money. And it's at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Each show is at least 15 minutes in length. Most are about half an hour this season or there or thereabouts. Uh, and you'll get four or five of them each and you'll get four or five of them for your $2 each month. Thanks to my guests this week, Chris Higginbottom. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And Radio Manchester's Mike Mine. Yeah, thank you, mate. Been enjoyable. Lovely stuff. Uh, I'll be back next week, and I'll see you then. Take care. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.